and welcome to Book City Roanoke. I'm Douglas Jackson, and I'm happy to kick off episode one of the podcast, first season with biographer Heath Hartage Lee. But before we start the conversation, I want to tell you a little bit more about our structure for the podcast. Most importantly, uh, it's brought to you by our founding sponsor, Book No Further, Roanoke's independent bookstore, putting ideas in your head since 2017, down on the Roanoke City Market. We're recording at CoLab Roanoke, and uh, the CoLab director and reader, Brad Stevens, is helping us kick off the podcast uh, and helping us produce this. As for format, I'll be speaking with authors and what we call city builders, uh, people who are shaping lives and the community through the written word and literacy efforts uh, here in the region. We'll check in with book clubs and we'll hear from local leaders on the books they're reading and we'll dig deeper in some specific works. Um, This season, we're focused on the theme of identity and action how the written word helps us uh, shape our understanding of ourselves, and then how we put that into action in the world around us. So I want to thank Heath Lee for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, She's currently really busy with uh, national media for her book, uh, The League of Wives, The Untold Story of the Women Who Took on the U.S. Government to Bring Their Husbands Home, which was published in early April uh, from St. Martin's Press. Uh, This follows her 2014 biography, Winnie Davis, Daughter of the Lost Cause, and that came out from Potomac Books. And Heath has a background in history, museum education, and historic preservation, as well as French language and literature. She lives in Roanoke and has roots in Richmond, and she's on the board of BIO, Biographers International Organization. Heath, thanks for being here, and thanks for being guest number one. Sure, always nice to be first. (laughs) Well, uh, let's just start with your work as an author. How do you describe your work? Wow. Yeah. It's a big, I mean, it's, it's kind of all encompassing and, um, but still in fits and starts. Um, I'm also a mom and a curator, so there's a lot of different roles to juggle. I think that makes it more interesting. Um, but the writing piece has always been kind of first and foremost. What excites me probably the most is writing about women and particularly about women that we don't know about. Um, I've been in this space for about 20 years and in various ways as a writer, a curator, a museum pro, uh, program person, a museum educator. And I, it's only in the past, really, I'd say the past five years that I feel like we're getting some traction in this area. And it's so exciting because I thought for so many years I would be dead before that would ever really become mainstream. And it's such an exciting time to, to be here because it is becoming mainstream accepted as just as relevant, just as important as a biography about um, men. So it's it's kind of crazy to think that for a long time, women were seen as so secondary because now they're playing such big roles um, everywhere, politics, history, medicine, education. It, it's a very exciting time to be in this space. I agree. Uh, so I guess I have about a two-part question. One, why now? And then two, what took so long? Oh, gosh. Well, I just think it's, you know, centuries of entrenched sort of ideas about women and and also ideas about what is women's history is it's not it isn't always the same as the history of men. You know, they're not exactly identical. And I've had a lot of kind of philosophical arguments about this and kind of feminist thought. But 
Um, the history of women is very different because for so long we did not have the vote. We did not have the rights. So the history is different. It, it might be more domestic history. It might be more about um, education or lack thereof. It, you can't t- compare that to, say, Theodore Roosevelt and his presidency to like his wife and what was going on with Edith, his wife at the time, are two entirely different histories. But I think they are equally important. And I think for a long time they were seen, the women's part was seen as lesser than, you know, not as important. And it's just as important. No, she wasn't running the country, but she was running Theodore, which was probably a lot harder than actually running the nation. Um, So, you know, she was doing that. She had her role as a first lady, as the the hostess, the social hostess, hostess of that um, administration. I mean, there were just so many other things she was doing, charitable work, working um, with different volunteer groups. So this is equally important. And I think it's still in the minds of a lot of people maybe seen as, as lesser than but it isn't. It's just different. They're kind of apples and oranges. And then soon, I think we're going to get to the point where there is no difference. Like there, we have women running for office. We have women um, running huge companies. It's happening more and more. So at some point, I think that gender identity is just, it's just going to disappear and probably cease to exist. So this Mm -hmm. is actually really exciting time For me, it's kind of like the 60s and 70s. I find so exciting and so interesting in American history because it's the same type thing. It's like the revolution has come or is about to come, but you're also back in the 60s era with the Kennedy, you know, Jackie Kennedy tweed suits and the hats and the pearls, but you are about to go through this massive cultural revolution. And I think now we're on the verge of kind of the same thing, which is so exciting to me. That's what I like to really focus on in my work. Oh, I, I agree. And that came through in the League of Wives. Um, and you, yeah. you do focus on fashion and what's happening. Yes. And it was so illustrative, uh, the fashion of the time. To talk a little bit about that. Yes. Well, I, I love that you picked up on that. Because again, this is something people think, oh, this is frivolous or this is women's history. No, material culture is so important to learning about the times. The music I would include in that. I became a huge fan of 60s and 70s music. I had never really cared about any of it. But then when you learn how important that is, the Rolling Stones or the Eagles or, you know, Fleetwood Mac, any of that so important during that late 70s and on time period. And the clothes, of course, the 60s prim suits and pearls give way to the poochie shifts and the mini skirts and the go-go boots. And that tells you so much about the times, the culture. It's just a huge marker. All of that material culture is very important, as well as the movies are huge at the time. Mm -hmm. Network is a good example in the 70s of just a a sea change, you know, in terms of movies. Anyone who loves movies, I know Mm -hmm. you do. It's like, I'm a huge movie fan. So I always try to see things kind of cinematically also. And that means you need a lot of visual references for people, not boring documents like those are Mm -hmm. all in there but you've got to weave those in and sweeten it up with clothes music movies Mm -hmm. cultural references to get people really engaged with the subject yeah and that that dramatic shift in uh women's apparel 
just really did kind of, for me, when I read it in the book and I tried to put myself in, in these women's places uh, where their husbands are, are POWs and they're on the home front playing the role that their government's telling them to play, that the military's telling, telling them to play. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, coming into their own in a position of leadership. And then you, and you think of, time of times of change being stressful enough. Um, it's just really... Mm -hmm really powerful um and and then yeah and then you you mentioned how um it's relevant today mm -hmm. it, yes and well you just yes. mentioned network and networks on broadway it's again. on broadway <laughs> with brian cranston i can't wait to see it like there's yeah it's all the 70s right now it's having this huge renaissance i'm finding also in publishing like topics i'm looking at next which i won't say quite i'm still kind of playing with some things but this period of the 60s and the 70s is super hot. I mean, there's stuff about Patty Hearst, about Nixon. Um, you know, of course, all the president's men was just made into the remade mm -hmm. into the thing about the post. But notice Catherine Graham is starring in it this time. So it's it's the 70s with the twist. I think there's a lot more emphasis on the media angle, of course, and women's role in that. Um, but yeah, I think it's super exciting because it's, it's reflected in all the media that we have. It's, it's just going back to digging through the seventies and that revolution kind of idea. I, and I want to come back to the, the fact that these stories weren't being told before mm -hmm. and the power of telling them now. And it mm. seems like as a culture, we allow more and more people to be fully human in our yes, society. Right. And how do, how do you see the work of your work as a biographer uh, helping uh, us in that path forward? Oh, I love what you said about like helping people become more fully human. It's so true. It fleshes out all this kind of the other that we weren't talking about before different minorities and women being a majority of the world that's still treated as a minority. And certainly in the sixties, it was seriously bad. Like I spent most of this book just being really mad <laughs> because it was, you know, the women, as you saw in the book, were treated so badly by the department of defense, the state department, the military, um, not their POW husbands, but sometimes just the men around them. And then there were some wonderful men like Bob Burroughs who saw how smart and how capable these women were. Bob Burroughs being the naval intelligence guy that helped these women to learn to code letters to their husbands in prison. And he was a rock star. So like, you know, it isn't always gender, of course, you know, that's too easy. That's the very simplistic. It, it's the person. But unfortunately, at the time, you know, there weren't many women in the government. There weren't people to be sympathetic. So um, a lot of these stories were sort of shoved in the background. And also the women were made to feel that they shouldn't talk about it. There was also that keep quiet policy. And so I think a lot of hidden histories of women we're under sort of a, an unspoken keep quiet policy. Like, you're not important. This isn't important enough to talk about, or this is too secret to talk about. We should never discuss this. And, you know, Me Too is a good example of that whole thing in a totally different way that, no, you can't ever talk about this. So I, I think there's long been a keep quiet policy on women across the board in different areas. And I think that's why it's so important all these hidden histories are told, whether they were repressed deliberately, which is the case some of the time. And a lot of the times I just think it was the cultural norm. It wasn't always malevolent or even deliberate. It just became part of the cultural fabric to the point nobody even noticed it. 
I talk about that in the book, mm-hmm. that the sexism that was so prevalent, nobody even noticed it. It was like, well, why are you talking about that? That's just that's just guys. That's just what they do. So now, of course, we have an entirely different different viewpoint of that. So it, it just struck me. And, and we're talking about identity and action and how the written word, word helps us shape our identity and our engagement. Uh, with the written word, and I just reflect thought about the Navy wife. Uh-huh. Uh, talk oh. a little, talk a little bit about that. Oh yes, oh that's one of my very favorite things in the book. The minute I found that, I was like, I I got it. <laughs> I've got my story. The Navy wife. So these are protocol guides written in the in starting really after World War II, um, kind of as morale guides, morale picker uppers um, by former uh, military wives, the Air Force wife, the Navy wife, the Army. Army wife, the Marine wife, all the service branches had one. And when you read these now, and I was looking at ones mainly from the mid 60s, um, they seem kind of horrifying because they are like, don't be a millstone around your husband's neck by not following the rules. You know, you can, many careers have been ruined by the Air Force wife's non compliance, like just so bold faced propaganda. And then within the book, there were many good things, many useful things that were just checklists for deployments or where to find resources. So they were a combination of really good resource guides and propaganda manuals. And it was all mixed together. So you didn't notice that. Um, Again, I don't think the women who wrote them sat down to deliberately try to have a propaganda manual, but it's just it was just kind of the military way at the time. And there was it seemed to be a great need to keep the wives in line, a big fear that they were going to get out of line, which I love my wives because that's what they do. And that makes it so much fun. They are not going to follow the Navy wife. They just toss that on the bonfire because there's nothing about prisoners of war missing. What do you do? Nothing, which is crazy. It wasn't in the protocol, guys, when you think about it, because this is in the 60s after the Korean War, after World War II. Nothing about that in the books. Not only in in those books, but policy-wide in the in the government. Yes. It, it seemed that, that there's, if there, what was there was, wasn't that richly thought out. No, nobody had really thought about it. And I'm still kind of astounded after the Korean War and all the POWs there so, and so many killed, there never was really a clear policy. Now, Eisenhower did have the code of conduct and, you know, there were some protocols to follow. But, um, yeah, it was woefully inadequate, basically, for um, the Vietnam War, which was a totally different war where the prisoners were kept for like eight years. In Korea, it was a much shorter duration, same in World War II. So I think they figured they could just suck it up until they got through that. But Vietnam, when you have eight years, you got to have some some recourse, some protocols for the women at home, and they did not. So it was tough. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about the the action that the, that the women took. First, let me just mention um, that we're speaking today with Heath Lee, author of League of Wives, available now from St. Martin's Press uh, at a bookstore near you. Uh, perhaps that bookstore is Book No Further on Roanoke's historic market. Stop by and visit with proprietor Dolores Vest to check out her well-curated assemblage of new and gently used books and perhaps arrange a discount for the purchase of books for your next book club. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that, uh, the action they took and um, that sense of the sense of identity that was sure, certainly shaped by a culture, shaped by the military, shaped by 
uh, everything around them. And then to mm-hmm. really have to, to buck that. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk a little bit about that and how you, how you saw that in play. Yes. And I, I think that was so hard for all these women, even the most forceful of them. This was against all their training as military wives to go public with any kind of scenario about their husbands. And so, you know, when aviators start falling out of the sky starting in 64, for a couple, the first two or three years, everybody keeps quiet. The government says you must keep quiet. They could be executed if you say anything. So, of course, the women are horrified. They try to keep it just among themselves. That is impossible. I mean, they, to not tell anyone but your closest family. So that really, after about a year or so, they start talking among themselves, but they're still terrified to go public. It's not until 1968 when Sybil Stockdale, the senior Navy wife in Coronado, goes public in the San Diego Union. Then she tells the story, not of everything, but just of her husband's situation, that he is a POW and that the North Vietnamese are not observing the Geneva Conventions. We don't. She's not talking about coding or secret stuff or any of that. It's just the general situation. And then things really start to crack open and this movement of the women Um, which becomes something called the National League of Families for Prisoners and Missing in Southeast Asia, explodes. And it it goes all across the country. But these wives, again, think long and hard about doing this because, A, could their husbands be executed? Um, In the long term, some of them worry it could ruin their careers, which sounds like some people are like, oh, that's awful. No, it really wasn't. I mean, they they really, they thought they were going to come home and, oh my gosh, did I ruin my husband's career by bucking the system, which it turns out the best thing they ever do is to buck the system, even according to people like John McCain, who said the POW treatment, it was like a light switch. They could tell when the women had been agitating. It went from night to day. And also after Ho Chi Minh dies, the communist leader, that helped as well. But McCain gave much credit, as did Jeremiah Denton and others, to these ladies. And he said without... Um, McCain told me um, when I interviewed him that he thought without these ladies, many more men would have died. So breaking the rules in this case is what saves the the day. Um, But they're really told not to do it, really cautioned against it for so long. Well, they and they certainly they played a leadership role uh, that they developed for themselves. Yes. Um, I, they, they really had to do some hard thinking. They, they, mm-hmm. It was a position certainly they didn't ask to be put in. Right. And it struck me too, I also read the Winnie Davis book. Yes. And I want you to talk a little bit about yeah. the, 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 the commonality there. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, because uh, Winnie was my first book. And of course, she. many people still don't know, she was the daughter of Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. And she herself was also a rule breaker, very different for her time. She couldn't quite get away from the Confederacy. She made a break for it, but I don't want to ruin the story. Spoiler alert, but she doesn't quite make it, but she makes a a valiant effort to have her own life, to get away from that, to to forge her own path. And Winnie is in in an earlier way. She's her story is mostly in the 1890s, so much prior to these women in the 60s and 70s. But all these women are trapped by constraints, by protocols, by these kind of unwritten rules, particularly in Winnie's case of decorum, of what they are supposed to 
do or not do. And uh, Winnie, of course, breaks a lot of those rules. She is a career girl. She writes books. She is working for Joseph Pulitzer at the World Newspaper. And horror of horrors, she dates a man who is the grandson of a famous abolitionist. And to Southerners at the time, they just flip out. This is like unbelievable that this would happen. And this poor guy, um, Alfred, her, her boyfriend gets death threats, very polite ones from Southerners threatening to kill him and then signing it. Truly yours, dear sir, <laughs> while I shoot you through the heart. It's just crazy. So, I mean, I'm always interested in rules and decorum because I think, you know, we're so constrained, kind of like an Edith Wharton novel. Edith mm -hmm. Wharton's one of my favorite, favorite writers ever. I mean, I just love her. I love all the movies that have been made. Again, the clothes. You can't get any better than that. But it's these unwritten rules that ruin people's lives. I mean, I could give Portrait of a Lady so many examples where if you buck the system, some good stuff can happen. Mm -hmm. It's not always advisable, but I mean, a lot of the time, that's the way you escape. And I feel mm -hmm. like Winnie tried to do that and Sybil Stockdale and her League of Wives did it and triumphed, you know, very spectacularly to everyone's surprise, even their own. So, mm -hmm you know, well-behaved women don't make history. It's really true. They don't. They kind of suffer in silence and waste away. So you got to yeah. speak out. <laughs> and, and if we're going to make progress uh, in whatever area, you, you name the area, um, you've got to take some courage to stand up and buck whatever the system is, the convention. Uh, and I, want, I, I, I read a lot to uh, live a better life. Yes, And I'm wondering how all of your research, whether it's curatorial work or the books uh, and studying these women, how that's inspired you personally. Oh, yeah. And I love that question to you because, you, you know, you spend so much time with these subjects. In this case, the last Winnie was like seven years. This last book was a little shorter, five years. And these women, in my case, I, you know, I talk to them. They become sort of like your guides, like almost like a spiritual guide, particularly in the case of the, these last women of the, the League of Wives, and so many are still alive. So I call them for advice. I talk to them all the time. I think about them. And the ones who are deceased, like Sybil Stockdale and Jane Denton, I think, what would Sybil do? What would Jane do in this situation? And, you know, you learn so much from watching leadership. And in this case, particularly the last book, it was to me, it was so much about leadership. As you have mentioned, I, I think about them constantly in terms of applying it to my own life and dealing with other people like diplomacy, um, strategy, making things work, getting, getting what you want, but having integrity that, you know, th there were so many good lessons that way. And also about being in an uncomfortable place, you know, in this case, purgatory for like years, how do you maintain composure? How do you take care of your children, have relationships with your friends, knowing all the while that your husband is locked up in this horrible prison being tortured? I mean, it, it had long-term repercussions for a lot of these women, a lot of several of them. And I read about this in the book, severe depression later in life, anxiety, things like that, nervous breakdowns, as they called it mm -hmm. at the time, to be expected. I think most people would, would completely understand that. But they were able to maintain their equilibrium for these long periods in very uncomfortable situations. So when I get stressed out, I'm like, 
okay. I'm not a prisoner of war. I'm not a prisoner of war wife. Life is good. Like it's putting it in perspective, right? Like Mm -hmm. we can, we can handle it if like it rains or the soccer game, everyone loses or something like that. I mean, there very few of us are Mm -hmm. dealing with life and death scenarios like these women were really pretty much every day. So Mm It, it makes you think, I think, a bit about complaining. So, Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. And how can I do what I know I have to do now and do it with poise and composure? Yes. Uh, and grace. Yeah. Like yeah. the grace that they had. Like at Jane Denton's one, I think about a lot. He was just such grace and strength. And it just, you think, God, I want to be like that. You know, yeah. you kind of want to emulate. There are people in my books I really want to emulate. And then there are people I really don't want to emulate. The people you don't want to emulate, though, in some ways are a lot more fun to write about, like LBJ, poor LBJ, who has mm-hmm. so much fun just being like, and again, it's the perspective of my ladies, but he was so awful to them. You know, villains are always kind of, I, if I were an actor, I'd probably be much more interested in playing a part like that. You know, they're oh. fascinating. Why do they do that? What is the motivation? So. I look to emulate the good ones and then the bad ones. I have a whole lot of fun writing about. Oh, oh yeah. And we, and we have to have those stories. And when we read them, we can see ourselves in that oh, as well. Yes. Pull up an instance where I didn't do what I could have done at the time, stood up yes. for someone that I could have stood up for at the time. Exactly. Or, or and certainly this, there were a lot of political uh, oh, yes. ramifications of, of action. Uh, and that's real leadership yes. stand, standing up when you're a politician to those political pressures. It is. And yeah. then the, you know, in this book, and I know, Doug, we've talked about this outside of the podcast, but Nixon and LBJ. So you think you know, right, that which is the good president, which is the bad president. LBJ, civil rights, which was awesome. He did a great job on that. Did a great job domestically. Ruined himself on Vietnam. Nixon, actually, according to the women in my book in the POW community, in their view, he did a really good job. He brought them home. He certainly treated these ladies way better than LBJ did. So we don't really know our political leaders at all, really. And in one instance, they might be a prince and then they might be Darth Vader in the next one. So, you know, no one's all good or all bad. Thank goodness we have historians and biographers. We know history is not as flat as it's presented to us, almost yes. as a cartoon. Yes. Uh, we have to go much deeper. And, and I, I really did appreciate that aspect of, of the novel, uh, or the, sorry, of the, of the work. I um, enjoyed doing that part. Flipping I, what you think is a lot of fun. And, and I love that I just called that a novel because it's so readable. Um, I love it, you called it that too. That's a huge compliment. <laughs> That's what I want is a novel. I want you to feel like it's a novel. Oh, I, 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 I really enjoyed I really enjoyed read it reading it and a real compliment um, I can remember uh, where I was as I was reading it how I felt uh, and that and that, that that's not always the case with me it's really so, cool so, I love that yeah and if our <laughs> listeners haven't haven't read it yet I urge you to go out and get the leave of League of Wives by Heath Lee and I want to thank Heath for being here this uh, brings us to the end of our episode of book City Roanoke identity in action uh, thank you for your insight Heath uh, thanks to our sponsor book no further which you can find on roanoke's historic city market or with a dot com at the end of it uh, read interviews with heath and learn more about our things literary at bookcityroanoke.com join us next time with our guest uh, ben bazak and gail Steele as they recap some of their conversations from the raleigh court library book club on the second mountain by david brooks <laughs>